Abigail Disney is a philanthropist and filmmaker. Now she's become an outspoken critic of the Walt Disney Company. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. In the last 15 years, Abigail Disney has helped fund close to 100 documentaries. Her grandfather, Roy, was the brother of Walt Disney and co-founder of the company. Abby's father, also named Roy, was a Disney executive who clashed with Michael Eisner and passed away in 2009. Three years ago, Abby went public with a critique of the company and its then-CEO, Bob Iger. Abby wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post titled, It's Time to Call Out Disney and Anyone Else Rich Off Their Workers' Backs. She describes how in the late 1970s, American executive pay started to grow astronomically while the average worker salary remained relatively stagnant. Now Abby has directed a new documentary titled The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales that expands on her argument. The film is co-directed by Kathleen Hughes and had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. In the film, Abby and Kathy follow employees of Disney theme parks as they try to make ends meet during the pandemic and organize for better wages. The film uses the catchy hook of Disney to explore larger issues of economic inequality. This is the second film they've directed together. The first was in 2015, titled The Armor of Light, asking questions about America's gun culture. Prior to that, Kathy had a long career working for Bill Moyers. I interviewed them in January, on the day when The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales was set to make its world premiere. The film attracted substantial press, but it's still looking for a distributor. I started our conversation by bringing up Abby's first producing credit on Pray the Devil Back to Hell, about women activists in Liberia. I asked how she chose to focus her philanthropy on film. Well, you know, when I made my very first film, I didn't start till I was 46 years old, so I always tell people that because I want them to know it's never too late. But um, taking that film around and showing it and watching what it did in the rooms it played in. Um, it, it, was, it was 78 minutes long and people were shifted so deeply um, that I just thought, oh my God, all my life I've been trying to work on getting through on the issue of inequality and racism and all these other injustices. And all this time right under my nose, here was this way to make a profound difference. So that's why I went all in on documentaries. So, uh, Kathleen, you come from a background of working with uh, Bill Moyers, and uh, you and Abby first collaborated on the Armor of Light about an evangelical minister who's questioning gun rights advocacy in his community. Um, what did you two appreciate about working together? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I think that we both care deeply about these subjects. We, I mean, we, when it came to the question of, of guns and the stand your ground laws and the way these, the way it was justified, I think we, we just realized we needed, we wanted to start a larger conversation and, um, and we've been putting our minds together, figuring that out ever since. Yeah. We, it's so, it's so good for me to work with Kathy because she comes with this long experience of getting the job done, getting it done quickly, getting it done clearly, 
for a guy for whom I have unbelievable respect. And so she was already versed in the social issues. She definitely filled in every hole in my capacities, which are significant. And Oh, come on now. Um, and <laughs> no. so it, it was just a nice complimentary um, set of gifts that we bring to it. So Abby, after supporting a lot of other filmmakers to tell their stories and uh, uh, beginning your own directing career uh, with Kathleen, um, tell me about coming around to you know realizing that you wanted to tell something that, that's your own story. Mm. I mean, Pray the Devil Back to Hell was um, world-shifting for me because... Um, I, I could see just how complex the job was, um, how much you had to let it kind of get into your heart and then fill yourself up and have no, no other room for anything else and how you had to, you know, live it, eat it, and breathe it. Um, so when we started Armor of Light, um, I, I just, I just, I loved this process so much. I loved thinking it through and I loved um, finding ways to think differently about, you know, entrenched social problems. So where I've landed in, in my filmmaking is really, Kathy and I both, we, we don't want to make films that are exclamation points. We want to make films that are question marks. We want to start conversations. We don't want to declare positions. Um, we, we just want to trigger conversations that we feel aren't being had that are important. It's not that normal for someone with inherited wealth to criticize the system that creates that wealth. And I, I wonder what it is in your life experience that, you know, gave you the urge to do that. <laughs> well, I guess I was always a little bit the black sheep in the family. Um, I always, and, and I was a black sheep by not being a black sheep. I was like the truth teller and the earnest one and a Girl Scout, and I always wanted to be you know, a hero. And um, that just led me into conflict with my family, whose, whose politics were deeply different from my own, even before I even understood my politics. Um, so uh, it's hard to choose to step forward and say something about the company that, you know, that, that it basically has been the, the lodestar of my life. Um, it's, it's, and, I, and I'm proud of that company. I'm deeply proud of that company, and I'm proud of what my grandfather accomplished as Walt's brother. But, I mean, I have been troubled and troubled and troubled some more for a long time. And I'm tired of saying I have no power. I, I mean, I have one power. <laughs> and, and it's the use of this name. And I, I, did, I, I can't not use it. Uh, Kathleen, when you're making a film about Disney, even with someone named Disney, um, I wonder <laughs> what some of the challenges are uh, that, uh, that you face, even just, you know, filming Disney iconography, filming Disney uh, property. Uh, they, you know, it's a famously litigious uh, company um, that, you know, fiercely uh, protects uh, all of its imagery. True. Um we were, we were very careful with all that. We had a great archive team, great lawyers, great editor. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, Disney, having an Abigail Disney to say, to say I'm making a film with Abigail Disney also opens doors. People want to talk to Abigail Disney or 
any Disney, I guess, maybe. But it's so it's it's a double edged sword in that regard. Um, but I think I think we. Um, yeah, we managed. It certainly narrows <laughs> the field of potential buyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to come around. I'm going to come around to asking about that in uh, in, in a minute. Um, uh, I mean, one of the ways in which we see feel in the film a presence of lobbyists is uh, there's an occasion where Abigail is testifying for Congress uh, about uh, uh, workers' pay and workers' protection, and um, and some of the Congress people are questioning or objecting to the fact that your cameras are filming this congressional hearing, which seemed very surprising to me because, uh, you know, I watch uh, documentaries with congressional hearings being filmed all the time. It was uh, highly surprising. And, and in the, in the voiceover, uh, Abby says that, you know, that you later learned that, that Disney lobbyists um, had put some pressure on uh, Congress people on both sides of the aisle uh, over that testimony and, and tried to they tried to get the session adjourned um, uh, uh, to not give that testimony. So, I mean, th there's a different example of uh, perhaps pressure that you might have felt. Absolutely. We felt it all the time. Even if they weren't bringing the pressure, we were feeling the pressure, which is part of the the strategy behind being that litigious and being that aggressive in lobbying and so forth. It, 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 it's amazing the suppressive quality it has. Um, but, you know, we wanted to make the best film we could possibly make. And, uh, you know, if they want to come for me, then they can come for me. I've seen them do it to my father in the past. And um, I just, I, you know, I, I know, I know what it looks like and feels like, and I feel like I can handle that. You mentioned in the film that you grew up watching your father try to battle Disney uh, from the inside uh, on, on two different occasions and really feeling a backlash, receiving a backlash um, in the press. And uh, so you, you saw the power of Disney to you know, defend its territory, even against uh, someone named Disney. You just mentioned that briefly uh, in the film, and it's you know a, a different story. But I wonder if you can elaborate a little on you know, on what you saw your father go through. Yeah. In fact, the publicist who sort of orchestrated this whole thing, Zenia Mucha, is still there. <laughs> and so, um, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm reprising history a little bit. My father um, had believed that Michael Eisner had failed to do uh, an adequate job at the company as CEO for quite a number of years, and he'd been working hard to have the board look at his record and judge him by his record rather than his reputation. And uh, he really worked every angle from the inside that you could work, which is what's so frustrating about board capture when CEOs really, really capture the board. They're not, you know, Disney especially lavishes people they like with free tickets to park and tickets to premieres and all this kind of special stuff. And once they have you, they people don't want to give that stuff up. Um, so... When my father resigned from the board and, and issued a public statement um, laying out the problems, uh, the company went straight into attack mode. And they don't tend to do it directly. They tend to do it through surrogates and emissaries. And I've already been on the receiving end of a little bit of that, not as much as they can do, certainly. Um, but uh, they, they attacked him in, the, in a really personal way, in a way that really hurt. 
you know, the idiot nephew thing. There, there are things people are prepared to believe about you when you've inherited money um, that are really complicated. And, you know, I'm not complaining, not complaining, not complaining. God, I always have to say that. But, you know, people are prepared to believe you're stupid, you're lazy, you've never done anything right, you've never worked a day in your life, and all of that kind of thing. How dare you bite the hand that feeds you? These are the things I hear again and again and again. You know, and, and so when you make an argument, um, all the attacks are ad hominem, you, or ad feminine in my case. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I watched my dad take those slings and arrows and, um, and, and hold his head high. And it, they were they were dirty. They were fighting dirty, and he still held his head high because he knew he was right, and he kept going forward. I respected that. I learned so much from that. Uh, I, you know, he was a hero. I think Zanya Mucha. Just one Zanya Mucha. Is that her name? Zanya Mucha. I think she just retired. Yeah. Um, and didn't they announce her pay package as well in the last? Just for the last year, seven million dollars. Yeah. Just for the, yeah. As bonus. Yeah, she, but I, and I think that was her bonus for retiring. But but she's been there forever. Clearly, she served them well. Yes, <laughs> clearly. Kathleen, I, you know, I, I start off describing this as Abigail telling her own story, but I think I should emphasize that in the film, you're centering the stories of Disney workers um, who are fighting for better pay and working conditions. And and Kathleen, I, I wonder what you learned in in those encounters. Uh, you know. F- Following several of these people over the course of uh, of more than a year, you some of them you're following before COVID begins, and then into COVID, and 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 then when the park reopens. Well, it's it's a good question. We learn. I mean, we learned about how hard they all work. First of all, and if I can even back up for a second, there was definitely always a lot of, especially once we got to the edit, um, of tension about about making sure that the film was as much about the workers and about the American economic system as it was about Abby. Um, and we really had to balance that. And Abby did not want anyone to walk away thinking she'd made a film about herself. Um, but in ter- and, and so we really, you know, the workers were, were um, really generous um, with us, with their time, with their stories. And um, I think, you know, I think the main thing that we learned is that they work as hard as they can and um and they still can't make ends meet and that's just really um and and that in so many ways they are just like so many other american workers i mean we've reached a point in this country where hard work doesn't guarantee you a you know doesn't guarantee you a a a living which is crazy. Perhaps the twist with them is that they're supposed to be working somewhere where everyone is expected to be happy, uh, which is maybe not exactly. the same as a Purdue meatpacking plant. Well, it's actually right. required of them that they smile, but Disney doesn't cover dental. You know, and I've had cast members say, yeah, I, I can't smile unless I get my teeth fixed. You know, I'm just not, I can't afford to go to the dentist. That's, that feels to me like one of those ultra ironic stabs in the heart just can't stand it yeah um and, and not the only one I, kathleen I, uh i'd love you to tell a little bit about the story of the parking lot um that you recount uh in this film which in 1996 the city of anaheim took out a 500 million dollar bond partly to build a parking lot for disney which it then leased to disney for a dollar a year even though disney gets to keep all the revenue and uh and and profits 
you were drawing upon some you know local reporting uh, to tell that story. You're drawing upon the uh, viewpoints of uh, a city councilman in uh, in Anaheim. Um, so uh, you're not the first people to um, to draw out the story, but it, it, it still remains shocking. It is a shocking story. The LA Times did it, and you can look it up, did a beautiful multi-part series about the billions of dollars in tax breaks that Disney took from, you know, received over a course of 20 years from the city of Anaheim. And I mean, the, the thing that's so incredible about it is how, how typical it is that this is how, you know, this is the way corporate America rolls these days in, in a sense. Um, they come in and and they take as much as they can get um, uh, in terms of break, tax breaks, low wages, you name it. The whole point is to send all the money to the top and, and not to spread it out. So in this case, um, this was part of a larger, you know, um, uh, community development plan. And, um, you know, it, I, I can't say exactly that Disney wrote the plan, but... And they were very influential in how the deal was, the terms of the deal came came out. And, yeah, the, and people, is, the people of Anaheim are still paying down and will be paying right. that down. And as a, one of the stipulations of the agreement, um, they can't use any surplus they have to fund firefighting or emergency services or anything else. Pensions. Every <laughs> penny of surplus they get annually has to be put into paying down that debt. And at the end of the term, Disney owns the property. So uh, there is absolutely no uh, way that you can argue that this was good for the people of Anaheim. There's absolutely no justification. But that's what Disney says. Disney says they, they generate, they're the engine, they're the economic engine. So, you know, it justifies all of this. I mean, it, it's a good example of what people mean when they describe socialism uh, for the rich. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that reminds me, when you're testifying in Congress, when we see you testifying in Congress in, uh, in 2019, uh, there's a Republican congressman who uh, invokes words like socialism and Marxism uh, to label you. And those words are so demonized in American culture that you know, once you, once they're attached to you, like you're immediately fighting this di different battle to recontextualize uh, them. I wonder in this, uh, you know, as you fought these battles, um, you know, what it means to to kind of work around that rhetoric and 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 that vocabulary. Yeah, I'm I'm I I don't, I, I I can't help but laugh when they say these things because I'm. Look, I'm a trust fund baby. How can I be a socialist and a trust fund baby at the same time? It just makes no sense. Um, you know, what I'm trying to do is is ensure that there's a company, a privately, you know, or held by shareholders company that is managed with an eye toward everybody's well-being. Um, that's there's nothing about that that's not capitalist. And in fact, if you want to save capitalism, you better change it and change it fast. Um, because people are angry. Um, so I kind of ignore those kinds of charges because they're just not worthy of my attention. And um, I think that we shouldn't engage with them because that, that's like setting off firecracker to distract someone so you can escape out the side door. Um, they don't, if they call me a socialist because they really don't have an argument. 
They don't want to have the conversation. I mean, that's the point. It just, it's a showstopper. Abby, since you began uh, speaking out, writing editorials, speaking on uh, uh, television um, uh, about uh, questions of inequality and uh, corporate role in inequality, I wonder, uh, you know, what you've experienced from your peer group of uh, of other philanthropists, or uh, or and even within your own family. I I, I see that your um, brother and sister, Susan and Tim, are listed as uh, co as executive producers um, of this project. So uh, uh, so that's an endorsement of, uh, of of family support. What else has that meant in in uh, as you're being outspoken? in your family and friend relationships? You know, I, I, there are members of the family who hate that I do this and they're very unhappy with me. And I, you know, I have thought and thought and thought about whether or not out of consideration for them, I should stay quiet. And I just, I just don't see how that, that would be good for anybody other than one or two people. So I've had to weigh, you know, the damage here as opposed to the damage there and go forward. Um, it's, it's, it's not fun to be in conflict with your family. Um, but honestly, there's a very special power in speaking against your own self-interest socially. And I recognize that that's, that's what keeps people listening because they can't believe what they're hearing. They're, I'm saying raise my taxes, please. And um, there was, I found a Snopes story because it was so unbelievable to people that I had actually said that. And, and that is the most depressing thing I can imagine about our country. Is it really so hard to imagine that people would step up for the well-being of the community instead of their own self-interest? That's how massively our norms have shifted onto this Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand's, every man for himself ethic. And uh, it's, it's killing us. So uh, we're speaking a few hours before the film is going to have its world premiere uh, at Sundance. Uh, Abby, you mentioned earlier that um, th this film will have uh, some different challenges uh, going out into the world of distribution um, than uh, than other films. Is it you know challenges basic corporate labor practices that um, you know even companies that aren't directly affiliated with Disney uh, you know have to feel some sensitivity uh, around. So um, I wonder, you know, how you're thinking about this film making its way out into the world, although it may be premature to be asking you right now since no one has even yet seen it. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I believe in the film. I believe we made a good film, and I think people are going to be interested in watching it. Disney has this amazing sticking power and attract power of attraction um, for audiences, so there's a natural curiosity in the mainstream public, more than just in your typical documentary audience. Um, so I'm hoping that we crack that and get out into a wider audience, because this is, needs to affect the way people vote and the way people think about taxes and the way people think about norms. Um, I, I know, yes, we lose a few streamers before we even get to market. Um, that's really all right with me because honestly, if I have to stand on a street corner with a megaphone on a soapbox, I'm going to make sure we get heard because this is just too important. It's really not right and it's completely unfair that I have a bigger, broader platform to work from than somebody else because I'm not an idiot. We, I have this platform because I inherited it. Um, but if I don't 
take this platform and use it for the public good, then shame on me. I want to thank Abigail Disney and Kathleen Hughes for speaking with me. Their new film is The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and is now looking for distribution. See our show notes for links to further articles and interviews with Abby detailing her critique of Disney and the growth of inequality. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs> <laughs>